0: Pastor Kevin, thank you. Pastor Kevin put together a awesome series of messages. Uh, really, this uh, Maranatha Christmas is—you uh, know—we said, "Hey, Kevin, you know, what, what, do you, what do you think we should do this this uh, year for this like Advent season, the four weeks, you know, of Christmas, essentially?" And and he put together a a series of messages that have embedded within them. Uh, I think it's it's really profound the movement that goes on here, and so. You'll see how it works, but if you haven't been here uh, the last few weeks, let me just give you a bit of a review. Uh, First and foremost, what you'll notice is that a central aspect of this series of messages is celebrating the presence of the Lord through the sacrament of communion, the Eucharist, the Holy Supper. Uh, And what we did in week one, when I preached week one, we actually had served communion and and shared this meal together together before the message. Do you remember that? It was, it, it was essentially like breakfast. You know, it happened at the beginning of the message. It, 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 you, you could almost see then these messages like a day being represented. And so it happened before the message even happened. And then the second week when Brian did it, he actually broke in the middle and had a message before and then communion and a message after. It was right in the middle. And then last week when Pastor Kevin preached it, it was almost near the end. And today what we'll do, it might feel strange to you, but it, it makes sense that what we'll do is we're actually going to, the very last thing we'll do together is we'll take communion and walk out the door. So we'll, 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 we'll take it as we go. It'll be a way in which we will take this season that, that of expectancy and we'll encompass it by having a meal that has covered the whole breadth of, of the season. And so it's moved from beginning to middle to end. And you'll I, th- I hope that'll make sense for you, even, particularly in light of today's message. A good series of messages uh, mean that each message stands alone, but they're also tied together. And so you'll see, I believe, how this, this one's tied together. So if you're with us in the Word, then open your Bible to Mark chapter 1. If you carry, if you're old school and you actually carry a Bible with you that's, that's on paper, God bless you. You're a person after my own heart. Uh, if you use it on your phone, that's okay. It's real. There you go. Somebody's holding it up back there. This is my Bible. Uh, and so, uh, Mark chapter one, and Mark in Mark chapter Mark does not get into the birth of Jesus specifically. Uh, Mark doesn't really get into a whole lot with much detail. Mark is about movement. You can read the whole book of Mark in about an hour. Uh, you can sit down in one reading and breeze through. Mark says, and then immediately, and then immediately, and then immediately. He's, he's, he wants to take us through the story. And one of my favorite things, I wouldn't have it up on the screen about the book of Mark, is the very first verse of the book of Mark, we misinterpret as a title. We misinterpret it as the gospel. Let me turn to the book of Mark. Help if I could actually see it. We misinterpret it like this. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Period. But the Greek doesn't really work that way. It would be a verbalist clause. And there's no such thing in the Greek. And so I believe a better translation of Mark 1 is this. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, just as it was written in the prophet Isaiah. So Mark is actually tying the beginning of the gospel to something that happened way before the birth of Jesus, to hundreds of years earlier when the prophets were crying out for the coming of Messiah. And we talked about that in in the weeks past. The first week I connected the the birth of Jesus and the coming of the Lord uh, in that first advent to before the beginning of creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Out of John 1 and Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 where the first good news is prophesied that one would be born in time that would step on the neck of the enemy. And... And in Mark, uh, we see that he's tying the coming of Jesus uh, to the coming of John the Baptist and all the prophetic promises that were made. I'll get into that in, in, in just a bit. But you'll see here that as Jesus gets into his uh, pronouncement of his, his ministry, that he is actually taking his entire existence. Hebrews 13 says that he's the unchanging man. The same yesterday, today, and forever And Mark 1. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus points it out this way. He says, now, well, it says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive into that. And so, Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would unpack for us the, the, the mystery and the depth and the beauty of this word we pray, Lord, that you would pour it into our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you'd start with mine. That you'd give me uh, just a place of clarity. That you'd give me uh, the humility to, to preach a word that would, that would penetrate the hardness of my own heart first. We pray, Lord, that, that this word would take, be good seed and that it would take root in good soil. Lord, what could you do? if we loved you more than anything. And so we we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. There is embedded within this passage a word that is uniquely and deeply important to understanding all that we mean when we talk about Maranatha Christmas or the idea of, of longing for Jesus. The Maranatha... Is, is essentially a prayer that either looks back upon the fact that he came in time and say, Lord, thank you that you came, or it looks forward to his return and says, come, Lord. Or it looks at the present and says, come into this situation. It is the depth. If you think Kumbaya is just some sort of popcorny, cheesy song that means nothing, you don't know how it was written. It was written by a group of slaves who, in the midst of their oppression, cried out, come, Lord. Come to where we are here and now and and rescue us from this this place. And that's a a part of what's embedded in this cry. And the word that's in here that kind of encompasses that is the word time. The time is fulfilled. The time has come. Now, this might be old news to a lot of you, but let me just break it down for you. I want to make sure we're all on the same page as we walk through this. There are two key words that we translate as time that were used in Greek thought. One of them is the word chronos, that we get the word chronology from. So when Paul says in Galatians 4, when the time had been fulfilled, God sent his son Jesus, born of a virgin, da, da 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 he actually uses the word chronos in Galatians 4. He says essentially when all the things that needed to happen, all the times had happened. And so just do this with me. Can't, ready? On, like, see this rhythm right here? Count with me to five. Ready? Go, one, two, three, four, five. Did anybody actually count? I could only hear myself. So You did in your hearts? Oh, you did with your mouths. Okay, okay, okay. So here's the deal. We can never get one or two or three or four or five back now. These are moments in time that have passed. And when, when we talk about time in this regard, we talk about the movement of the world from beginning to middle to end. You were born on a date You're at a certain journey in the midst of your life, and that life will end physically at some point, you know, to come hopefully in the very distant future. But you move from beginning to middle to end. We are not Hindu. We are not Buddhist. We don't believe that round and round she goes. Where she stops, nobody knows. We believe in the linear passage of time that we go from beginning to middle to end. Our whole understanding of our life before the Lord is born in this, this understanding that starts in Genesis 1 and it ends in the end of the book of Revelation with Maranatha. That, that, there, that there was a time when God created, and there's a time coming, <clears throat> the end of time, where he will reconcile all things. Amen? Amen? That's how we understand chronology. It's important that we understand it. We live in it. We're bound by it. You can't get back anything that's already passed. You can't save time. You can only spend it. So, that's that. But in Mark 1... When Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he does not use the word, or it's not translated, I don't know what Aramaic word he would have used, but as it's translated by Mark. It's not the word chronos, it's the word kairos. Now, kairos is very different from chronos. It has nothing to do with one, two, three, four, five. It has everything to do with a season. It's an appointed time. It's, it, you might think of it as God's time. And the reason it's so important is this. God himself, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are not bound by chronology. God doesn't live bound inside of time. He doesn't live like you and I live. He doesn't live like, you know, gosh, now that that moment's passed, I can never get it back. He is not subject to time. He can, he can play with time. He can do whatever he wants with time. He doesn't, it doesn't matter to him that March already happened. It doesn't matter to him that November of 2020 is coming. It doesn't matter. None of these things matter to him. He's not bound by any of these things because he lives outside of it. And the way that he describes his time is embedded within this Greek word kairos. That means an appointed time or an appointed season. We're in a season now of celebrating Christmas. And, and it, you would say, or when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he's not saying one, two, three four, five. It's much more like a very pregnant woman saying, it's time. Like the time has passed that needed to pass for, uh, for the birth to come. Now it's time for a birth. It's the appointed season for something new to come. And this is what Jesus is saying. And when he says it, it encompasses all of chronology. Past, present, and future. When he says the time is fulfilled the, you know, repentant, but the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. It, it, it encompasses all of time. And so it's a really important concept for us to grasp, to grasp what it means for us to celebrate, I guess, with that kind of an advent or Maranatha spirit within our hearts for Christmas. And so what I want to do is I want to break down with that understanding of Kairos, I'm going to, th- th- this is, this is going to sound really convoluted because I'm going to break a lot of rules. The three-thirds of Christmas, okay? I'm going to break down the three-thirds of Christmas for you. One-third, two-thirds, third-third. That makes sense? One-third, two-thirds, three-thirds, all right? And the reason I'm going to break a rule is I'm going to start with the fourth-third. So it's like one and a third or something like that. Anybody do math out there at all? Got it right. All right, so good. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, so three-thirds of Christmas. And the reason I want to do this is I believe that for most of us, we don't live into the fullness of this season. We live in part in this season. Some of us live in the fourth third that I'm going to get at in just a second. But most of us who have been brought up in the church live in maybe two halves of it. How confusing is this? I'm all about math and fractions this morning. <laughs> Let me start, though, with that with that fourth third, because the fourth third really isn't part of Christmas at all. It's imposed on, on what we should be focusing on. When we look at first, second, and third thirds, this fourth part is an imposition. It comes from the outside in, and it's not necessarily in and of, of itself evil. It's not bad, but it's definitely not it. And what that is, that thing is, is it's what I would call the Christmas culture. You know the Christmas culture, right? Yeah. The, the, the thing that kind of grabs hold of us every year. It's the thing right now for any of you that are feeling stress in this season. That's what's got hold of you. You are not stressed over your remembrance of the birth of Jesus. And you're not stressed over the prospect of him coming to make all things new. You're stressed over things like parties and presents and lists and money and all that sort of thing. For many of us, the the, the the celebration of this season really isn't about seeking and watching and waiting for the Lord. It's, it's, about, it's not about the saving events that we realize that, as Galatians 4 says, we're born in the right time. It, it, it doesn't take into account events that encompass all of history. It's about shopping and decoration and that sort of stuff, and I'll tell you why it doesn't really offend me. I don't I don't get offended when I go to the store and they say happy holidays or something. It doesn't bother me in the, in the least because the Christmas culture at least is a signpost to people. It is an opportunity for people who don't even dare to poke their nose into the Bible or into the story to at least be confronted by the depth of what we know to be true. So don't be offended by it, but it's not this. this I read something just this week that says this. Christmas is wide-eyed children Fairyland magic, age old music, and goodwill in the hearts of men. That's what Christmas is. And I think if that's all Christmas is, then it, it I mean, we're, we're, we're to be pitied amongst people because that cultural celebration of Christmas, the thing that causes you the stress, you know, within you, it doesn't have any potential to change the world for the better. It only has the potential to change our hearts in ways that maybe hurt. What is that? What do they call that day? It's like the second Tuesday in January. It's the day when your credit card bill arrives. They call that, it's some name for it. It's not a good day. It's not a good name. It's the day, it's the reckoning day where all the things that you did to make sure that it was, that Christmas was fairyland magic with wide-eyed children comes home to roost. And you're like, man, we got to, somehow or another, we got to make it through this year so that we can get to next year because we've just dropped a ton of money to make sure Christmas was beautiful. It doesn't change the world, though. And so can we set that one aside for a minute? Can we lay that one at the altar and just say, Lord, we know it's real. We know it's out there. We know you might even use it, but it's not us. Amen? Okay. Well, then let me break down the three-thirds that are us. The first one has to do with what I think most of us spend all of our time celebrating at Christmas, and that's this. It's the it's Bethlehem. It's Bethlehem. You know, it's the idea of Jesus being born in time. I would say that if you look at the way in which we talk about Christmas, if you look at the way in which we right about Christmas, if you look at the way we sing about Christmas, most of it has to do with remembering, looking back 2,000 years ago and remembering that there was a time when Jesus was born, God made flesh, and he was born in a stable under miraculous circumstances, and and that's what we call Christmas celebration, right? Thank you. It's wonderful. It's done in the fullness of time, and it's, and it's you, you know, as I said three weeks ago, Mike Graston taught this in the, in the children's church in a wonderful way. He basically said we have to get in a time machine and go way back. But we don't just go way back to Bethlehem. We have to go way back to the book of Genesis and even the counsel of God to know that this was in God's heart all along. But even if we just go back to Bethlehem, we see so many things happening there in the fullness of time. And when the time had come, as Galatians says, or as Jesus says, the time is come. The Kairos time has come. You see so many things happening there that are so imperative and the stories are so beautiful and they're so capturing. You look at shepherds who are watching. They were, they were watching shepherds and this is who the Lord goes to and says, you go and see and give witness to his birth. You can go to Bethlehem today and see the fields where they were keeping watch over their sheep and the sheep that they were keeping watch over were sheep that would eventually be used in the temple for sacrifice. Raising these sacrificial lambs, they go and get to see the one who would be crucified on the cross. Shepherds were watching. And magi who were seeking. I got to, to teach last week in children's church with the, the kids about these magi, these, these these men who'd come from probably what's now Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan, Amidi, an area up in the north of that part near the borders of Syria and Turkey. And these maybe, you know, 300, maybe 3,000. We don't know how many. We, knew, we say three because there were three gifts. And so maybe each of them, maybe three tribes with you know, tons of, of men who were astrologers or, or royalty or something like that, and they came to bear gifts. And what gifts did they bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They, they had no idea the prophetic significance of these gifts. I don't think there's any way they could have known what they were bringing. They bring gold, which is a, a gift fit for a king, for royalty. They bring frankincense, which, is, which is, was burned and rises up into the nostrils of God. It's a gift fit for the, for, for the divine. And they bring myrrh, which is an, which is an oil, that's, a spice that's used to anoint dead bodies. It's a gift fit for one who would die. I have no idea what they're bringing in these gifts. And these magi come seeking. Where do they come to find Jesus? They go to Jerusalem. Because where they go to the city of the great king because they hear this one would be born king of the Jews. They go to King Herod and they say, hey, where do we find this one born king of the Jews? And he's like, well, that's me. And no, 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 not you. No, the one who was the star is pointing us to. We have gifts to bring him. And, and they come to Jerusalem and, and they have to follow the GPS to Bethlehem to find the king. And then you have Simeon and Anna and Luke 2 who are neither watching nor seeking as primary occupations, they're waiting, they're adventing. They're in the place of, of, of believing that the prophecies that of old, 400 years old and more, that have been prophesied about Jesus would be fulfilled in their lifetime, and they see the promises come to pass that almost all of Israel misses, but they don't miss why? Because they're not, they're not waiting like sitting in the doctor's office, waiting for their their name to be called, they're sitting and they're, they're waiting in the temple, actively waiting, interceding and believing that God would fulfill all that had been promised to them. Do you know how many prophecies Jesus fulfills? Old Testament prophecies just in his birth? Well, every, that's a good answer, everyone, every one of them. I, I don't. It's something like 48 Old Testament prophecies just about his birth, somewhere in that number. Do you know the odds of one man fulfilling all of those prophecies is it's, it can't be calculated. I, my math will stop. I actually had it written down somewhere, but it's it's just ridiculous to even try to say it. It's like one in a trillion, trillion, trillion. It, it's so exponential. It, 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 the odds of one person fulfilling them, you can't even calculate the odds. The odds of one person fulfilling just eight of them. It's crazy. It'd be like me going to uh, the Middle East. I'm uh, going in January. It'd be like me going there and and writing a letter uh, and, and, and just writing a letter that says, Steve and putting a stamp on it and dropping it in the mail, what are the odds that it would actually get to Steve Lewis in Jacksonville? I mean, it could happen, right? But if that letter arrived at Steve's doorstep, we would call that a miracle, That, that a letter that just said Steve. I've heard somebody calculate the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the prophecies. It's like filling all of Texas with half dollars waist high and then putting on one of them Jesus, and then blindfolding a person and setting them loose and saying, go pick out one coin and bring it back. The odds of that person picking the coin that has Jesus' name on is about the same as the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of the prophecies about the coming of Jesus. So it is right, and it is fitting for us to look back upon this with wonder because it's obvious when you, if you just look at it intellectually and logically, it's obvious that God is moving. He says the time is now, and Boom! Jesus is born. It's right for us to be, have wide-eyed wonder about the birth of the, of the Christ child. But that's only a third of what it means for us to really be in a place of expectancy during the season. The second third of, of what it means for us is what we find in the song, Joy to the World. I think Joy to the World is literally... In, Written out of Psalm forty-eight, but do you know that this song is written not to celebrate the birth of Jesus? It's written to celebrate the return of Jesus. Joy to the world! The Lord is come is saying that He's coming, and this song is written to think more about. There's a day coming where Jesus will return, and He will make all wrong things right. And it's 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 than it is about the fact that He was born in time. There is a at least a third of our hearts during this season as we've experienced Advent, as we go, you know, Advent, if you just want a good definition for it, just remember when you were young. How many of you kids that are in here right now are excited about the coming of Christmas? Open, yeah, opening up a present under the tree that has your name on it. Yeah, well, there, there is this idea within our hearts of waiting with hope and expectancy that we, it's not just about looking back, it's about looking forward to that gift that will open. And the coming of the Lord is the greatest gift that we'll ever experience. Now, it's not like we think. Titus 2 says that Jesus came once in grace, He came to pour out grace on the world. And, it, and He kind of came in a very obscure, humble way, born in a manger, and not many people saw it, only those who were seeking and watching and waiting. But He's coming again in glory. And it says when he comes back in glory, there's not going to be any, any mistaking of it. There's not going to be any doubt about who he is or who's coming. You can read about it. Well, I'll read, it. I'll read you a section here. I'll just flip over and read. It's not, it's not going to be on the screen. Just receive this. Here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's a snippet. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He had a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Do you know there's a name for Jesus that only he knows that we don't know? Isn't that fascinating to you? There's a name that he, that he knows himself by that is probably some intimate name that the Father knows him by that we don't know, that he himself knows. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying. in air: Come gather together for the, for the great supper of God, for this great meal that's coming. That's a third of Christmas. That's a third of what we're to be, to be celebrating. We gather around the tree and we say, man, let's open some gifts. One of the, a third of our hearts should be pointed and postured towards this day where Jesus is coming to make everything wrong right. We will not have to endure the wrath of God. We will endure the wrath of the enemy you know, to see Jesus make war against all things that are anti-Jesus. This, this is a third of our hearts that are are postured that way. There There were shepherds watching and magi seeking and Simeon and Anna waiting. And in a very similar way, we are postured now in a position as we look at signs that are leading us into the end of all things. We are supposed to be, as believers, postured like shepherds and magi and And prophets who are intercessors, seeking, watching, and waiting for the return of the Lord. Our eyes should be pointed in this way. I'll read you a quote, if I can find it, from a guy by the name of Henry Nowen, who's not oftentimes identified with this sort of thinking. This is what Henry Nowen says. Hi, Carol. Oh, he doesn't say that. I do. I just, my wife walked into the back. Whenever I see my wife, I say hi. (laughs) How's it going over there? All right. Is that okay? I took a break to say hi to my wife. So back to Henry Nouwen. What he actually said is this. Songs, good feelings, beautiful liturgies, nice presents, big dinners and sweet words do not make Christmas. Christmas is saying yes to a hope that's based on God's initiative, which has nothing to do with what I think or what I feel. Christmas is believing that the salvation of the world is God's work the restoration of all things? Is God's work in God's time and not my work and not my time? It's not chronology. It's 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 Kairos. When God says now, in this eternal sense in which it's always now for Him, He says that that is the thing that you know, I mean. At least a third of our hearts at Christmas should be postured towards God. Is it now? Is this the time? Well, a third is looking back onto that, onto that birth, that amazing uh, event that, that changes all of history because God becomes flesh and moves into the neighborhood and dwells among us. And a third of our hearts are pointed to this day that's coming when Jesus returns, not in some humble stable, but riding a white horse with a name that only he himself knows, and his name is the word of God, and king of kings, and lord of lords, it's, it's emblazoned on him, and a whole army of heaven is riding with him, to come to make war against those, who'd stand against him, that, that day's coming, and a third of our hearts are postured there, where does that leave the final third, can we live here, we can't, we can look upon it, and we can say, you know, the, the Bible calls the gift of, the, I call it hindsight discernment, to be able to look into the past and see exactly what God was up to. The Bible calls it remembrance. Remember. We can't live here, though, and we can't really live here. We can prepare for here, and we should prepare for here. We should live as those who are prepared for the coming of the Lord and not as those to be taken by surprise. We, but we can't live here. So where do we live? We live here now. And there's a third of our hearts at this season that has to be willing to embrace the now part of this. And this is, I think, the most challenging part of Christmas. This is where the Christmas culture comes in and robs us of the real depth of what this season has to hold for us. Because we do joyfully long for the appearing of the Lord coming you know, in glory. We look to that. We, but we live here and now. And we we, we aren't necessarily, we're certainly not in the end of the end, but if you look at the book of Daniel, we're at least in the toes. We're in the toes. You can search that one out on your own, let the reader understand. But we also aren't in Bethlehem. We don't, like the wise man go to Jerusalem to be sent to Bethlehem. We end up going to Bethlehem and being sent to Jerusalem you know, to the, for the return of the king. But we live here in this present moment. And Advent has this, this highlight for our lives now. When we say Maranatha, it isn't just remembering or looking forward. It's saying, come, Lord, now. Come right now. There's a famous painting. I, I wish I'd remembered to put it up on the screen. It's, it's, it's from, uh, I think, the 17th century. And it's a painting that, that, that depicts the murder of the innocents. Do you, know, do you know the story of the murder of the innocents? It's what happens when Herod decides that to deal with the prophecy of the Magi that one would be born king of the Jews. And so what he does is he 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 searches for all these, these baby boys. And 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 there's a, a painting that's drawn of this, and it's I guess in Jerusalem, and it you can see in the background guards running through the streets with swords out and you could see a mother running down the steps with her baby and then in the foreground hidden in a corner, huddled in a room is a woman wrapping up her, her little baby and as she's looking into the screen or the screen, as, she's look, as she's looking into the I looked at her on the screen, as she's looking into the, into the eyes of those who are looking at her, she, you can see that there's terror on her face as she's dealing with this present evil wicked age of like, where are you now? almost seems to be crying out, you know, from her heart, like, where are you now in this moment? And this has to be a third of our Advent heart as we sang about this beauty and the brokenness, this willingness to look and embrace anything that the world would throw at us and say, you know, Lord, what answer do you have for the here and now? There it is. Thank you, Brian, for finding that picture. You can see that face. And if you you look this up on your own and zoom in on her face, it's haunting. The sense of like, God, what about now? You know where are you? And there is this threat from the the, the, the voice of the world that would tell us he 's not here and now because he 's not capable or he 's not real, or best case scenario, he is, but you 've been orphaned you 've been left behind you 've been forgotten. He's a watchmaker who set things into motion and took his hands off, and now he has no control over the the chronos, the moving of one moment to the next moment. He just stands outside of it and kind of sort of just chuckles as it spins out. And if a third of our hearts aren't postured to saying, Lord, what answer do you have for us here and now, then we're missing a ton of it. And if we're spending all of our time getting caught up in the Christmas culture or just remembering his birth, we're not willing, we have no answer for the world, an unbelieving world. An Advent, this Maranatha cry has a highlight for our lives right now. We'll see him in, in all his glory at the, at the end of time. And we can look back with remembrance and see how he was present, you know, 2,000 years ago, walking the land. But he's just as present for us now as he was then or he will be in the mystery of this meal. If you take this meal as just a little bit of bread and a little bit of a juice, you miss the significance of the promise that's embedded within this meal. We believe that somehow mysteriously these common elements of just bread and cup become for us the body and blood of Jesus. We believe that it encompasses what he's done for us. We believe it encompasses what he will do for us. But the reason we call it, one of the names for it is communion is because it is meant to express this divine union that has been made, that Jesus has mediated. As the book of Job says, he's the man who can lay hands on both of us because he is a divine mediator who can, he is God and he is man. He's fully both and he can put his hands in both places and say, I can create a union for you that you could never have on your own, and it's available to you here and now. And so the final highlight, the final third of this season, when Jesus talks about the fullness of time in Mark 1, it's this meal, it's this sacred mystery, this visible sign, this outward sign of an invisible grace, and it was given to us by the Lord himself as a remembrance, but also as a present help. It's a regular, even daily. Carol and I now take communion daily as we pray together. It's a daily reminder that he's with us. It's an opportunity for us each and every time we do so to encounter the Lord. How many of you desire to, be, to encounter the Lord? I mean, to really encounter the Lord. This is a real opportunity to do so. It's not rote. It's not passing. It's not just a snack. It's real. We can walk uh, in, his, in, in, in his grace and receive the help of his grace when we do it. And as the Lord taught us, he did not leave us orphaned. And he appears in the immediate aftermath of his death and resurrection, the first thing he does that we see is he appears to a couple of guys who are walking on the road to Emmaus who have no idea what's happened. And he just walks amongst them and says, hey, guys, what happened? I mean, I love, I, maybe you don't get it or care about it as much as I do or it doesn't tickle you the same way it does me, but I love the playfulness of God. They would walk into the scenario and just say to these guys, what's going on, guys? You're like, haven't you heard the news? Tell me about it. Well, the one that we thought was Messiah who was born in time has actually been killed in Jerusalem and we're all, we're all grieving. We're all very sad. And Jesus then starting you know, in the prophets, like the book of Mark says, and moving forward, tells them all things that were to come to pass. And when it came time for him to leave, he walks into their house with them. They invite him in to the table. And as he breaks the bread and blesses the bread and the cup, just as he'd done as the last thing, the last meal he'd had, he, he, they see him. And they say to themselves, what, when they see him? They say, weren't our hearts burning within us the whole time he was with us on the road? See, this is what happens when Jesus encounters us. He sets our hearts ablaze in a way that no one else can, nothing else can. And this meal is intended to give us heartburn. It's intended to establish burning hearts. It's not intended to just be, it's not supposed to be easy to digest. It's supposed to mess with us and get in with us and cause us to celebrate and reflect and to recognize that even when I feel like I'm at my worst in this season, He is with me. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. He didn't leave us orphaned. He's present to us and he's with us in the Eucharist and in the celebration of it. And so we're invited in this meal to go deeper in our understanding uh, of, of what it means for us to celebrate. It's not, obviously, not just the culture of Christmas and the celebration of gifts and trees and lights and decorations and parties, as wonderful as they can be to point us towards the reality. And it's not just about his birth, it's not just about his coming. And it's not just about this meal. It's when you wrap it all together. You get the three-thirds of it. It's something profound and deep. Brian, I'm going to invite you to come up. I'm going to read to you a story. It's, it's my very favorite Christmas story. And I've read it a lot traditionally, but I haven't read it in years. And I want to read it. For many of you, it'll be familiar because I've read it before. But for some of you, it'll be new. And... To me, it's so powerful because I believe it does encompass kairos, the understanding of the fullness of time and how God moves through events and uses them past, present, and future to establish himself in our hearts and in our lives. And so, can I read you a story? I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pause for a minute and let them play. And then I'm going to come back up and I'm going to institute communion. And we're going to, that'll be my final words. And two people, two different groups are going to be in the back. And you can receive communion and walk out. I'll be in the front for anybody who wants to receive communion and pray up here. We'll have a third station up here. But just know when I pray and, and, and institute communion and tell you you can go in peace, um, that the idea is, is that you would walk out. Not, not Communion is way less funeral and way more fiesta. We have to be we have to really take stock of our lives before the Lord, but there's great joy, isn't there, in knowing that he's with us, he's not left us or forsaken us. But let me read you the story. It was a bitterly cold Christmas Eve in Korea 1952. An expectant young mother hobbled through snow toward the home of a missionary friend where she knew she could find the help she needed. And tears of sorrow froze on her face as she mourned her husband. He'd recently been killed in the Korean War and she had no one else to turn to but this missionary friend. A short way down the road from her missionary friend's house was a deep gully spanned by a bridge. Her name was Bak Yun and she stumbled forward and the birth pains suddenly overcame her. It was time. And she fell and realized she could go no further and she crawled under the end of the bridge and there alone between the arched trestles of the bridge her baby boy was born Bak Yun had nothing with her except her heavy padded clothes and one by one she removed every piece of her clothing and wrapped them around her tiny son still connected to her body by his cord around and around she wrapped him like a cumbersome cocoon Then, feeling a piece of burlap under her back in the snow, she pulled it over herself and lay exhausted beside her baby. The next morning, Miss Watson, who was the longtime missionary uh, friend, drove across that same bridge in her Jeep to take a Christmas basket to another Korean family. And on her way back, as she neared the bridge, the Jeep sputtered and died out of gasoline. She sighed and got out, took her key, and started to walk back across the bridge to her home. Through crunching snow under her feet, she heard another sound, though, a baby's faint cry. She stopped, unbelieving, and then she heard the cry again. It's coming from beneath the bridge. She crawled under to investigate, and there she found a tiny, bundled baby, warm but hungry, and young Bak Yun, the mother, frozen to death. With a knife from her toolbox, she cut the cord and took the baby home with her. After caring first for the child, she alone with some helpers brought Bak Yoon's body to the mission compound and buried her there in the cemetery. She named the baby Sue Park, and she herself adopted him as her own. He was strong and healthy and so grew up among many other children that Miss Watson cared for at the mission compound. But to her, he was special. She often told him, Your mother had great love for you, Sue Park. And about how she had proved that love, he never tired of hearing the story of his beautiful mother. On Christmas Day, his 12th birthday, snow was falling. And after the mission children had helped Sue Park celebrate his birthday, he came and sat beside Miss Watson. He said this, Mother Watson, do you think God made your Jeep run out of gasoline the day you found me? He asked her perhaps he did she said if that jeep hadn't stopped i would not have found you and i'm so glad it did stop i love you and i'm so very proud of you sue park she put her arms around him he rested his head against hers mother watson will you please take me out to my mother's grave i want to pray there i want to thank her for my life yes sue park but put on your heavy coat it's very cold out Beside the grave, Sue Park asked Mother Watson to wait at a little distance so he could have privacy with his mother. He, she walked aside and waited, and as the astonished missionary watched, the boy began to take off his warm clothing piece by piece. Surely he won't take off all his clothing, she thought. He'll freeze. But the boy stripped himself of everything, laid it all in his mother's grave, and knelt naked, shivering in the snow. She waited one minute two, then three. Then she put her gloved hand on his shoulder, snow-covered shoulder, and she said, come, Sue Park, your mother in heaven sees how much you love her. I'll help you dress now. Then in deep sorrow, he cried out to the mother he never knew, were you colder than this for me, my mother? And he wept bitterly because he knew, of course, that she was. writer of this true story this is actually written by uh, some friends of mine the mother of some friends of mine who knew Miss Watson And this is what she writes she says when Christ came he stripped himself of every royal garment and entered our world of hatred and cold indifference why did he do it because he saw centuries of broken lives needing a lord and savior were you colder than this my lord were you colder than this And so, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to understand the significance of the one who came and emptied himself of everything that was rightfully his own. That's you, Jesus. You did this for us. You came humble and naked. And we ask, Lord, were you colder than this to make a way for us? And we say, Lord, come into our here and now and break into this world of hatred and bitter cold indifference and warm us with the light the fire of your presence as we prepare to take this meal Lord establish burning hearts through the bread and the cup so I'm just going to let them sing for a bit I'm going to kneel down and thank the Lord and then when we're done with that all we'll have communion Behold, you have come.